0: Well, we're continuing today in our knowing God series and I'm really excited to have CT one of our leaders up here to teach We have CT. Come on up. It's really fun. CT has been one of our uh, leaders in alpha Uh, He's he's got a real uh, gift for this He has some unique training uh, going back to his college days and it's been a real joy uh, Working together uh, leading into this and I'm really excited for you to hear what the Lord has has put on on his heart Um, and this is what they say is his maiden voyage uh first sermon so uh, i know we already give him a hand but let's go ahead and encourage him one more time uh, i had him come up here even though i'm getting ready to read the scripture because uh, I, I then want to pray before we uh I, before i hand things over to him uh today is uh, our scripture reading is in second kings we're going to be in chapter five and we're we'll reading verses one through 19. so second kings uh five and we're gonna be looking at verses one through 19. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten shekels of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring things back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back. To the man of God, he stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let your servant be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifice to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When, the master, when my master enters the temple of Rimen to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have, I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimen, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. Now let's pray as we, let's pray as we uh, get into God's word together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Thank you so much for for your servant, uh, C.T., as he's been preparing for this, studying it, and uh, really been in prayer over it. I pray that you would fill him with your spirit now, that you would speak through him, bless him and his family. But I pray that uh, this would be a time where not only you would speak through him and encourage him, but as you speak through him, you would encourage and speak to each of us here today as we want to hear from you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Alright, so as we continue through our series on knowing God, this week, we arrive at the concept of grace, grace is a foundational tenet of Christianity, and its influence on our culture is so deep that we can often forget how unique and interesting this is among world religions, people say grace before a meal, we talk about it, uh, being being in people's good graces. And grace is also deeply embedded in our broader culture as a spiritual concept, just generically. The song Amazing Grace, arguably one of the most recognizable in the English language, um, has over a 1000 copyrighted versions registered um, and is estimated to be performed almost 10 million times annually. But if we look at religions throughout history, the idea that unmerited favor from God um, is actually unheard of until the emergence of Christianity. The author Philip Yancey has this to say about grace. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. So I was pretty excited when we landed on today's passage. It comes to us from the book of 2 Kings, and it's about Naaman. An army general from the kingdom of Aram which is better known to us today as the country of Syria it happens almost 900 years before Jesus in the New Testament and it's not really a story of someone who was faithfully following God instead it's sort of the unlikely tale of a proud pagan general who made a career out of warring against the nation of Israel and how God's grace completely changes his life this unexpected backdrop provides a pretty nice way for us to really study God's grace And I hope after spending some time today, we get to really understand and have a better appreciation for the breadth and depth of God's grace and ultimately how we should be responding. But First, let's briefly recap the story that we just heard. So we meet Naaman. He's a celebrated military general in Aram, and this is the kingdom which is next to the northern kingdom of Israel, which we talked about last week. He's noted for winning multiple victories over the Israelites for the kingdom of Aram but also for the fact that he suffers from leprosy, an incurable uh, and serious skin disease. A Jewish servant girl that was part of his household that his group had captured from a war previously decides to tell Naaman about the prophet Elisha. This Elisha guy is famous for his ability to perform miracles, including healings. Maybe he can do something about his leprosy. So Naaman against his king uh, to write a referral letter and asks to take a huge entourage with him to Israel to seek out this Elijah person. Now, Aram and Israel are sworn enemies at this point. And so at first, the king of Israel mistakes this request um, for a pretense for war because it's seemingly a supernatural request. Luckily, Elisha steps in and asks Naaman to come to him through a messenger. He tells Naaman that in order to be healed, he needs to bathe in the River Jordan seven times. Now, Naaman is already feeling a little bit slighted because Elisha didn't actually receive him in person. And so when he gets this sort of random nonsensical set of instructions, he's pretty pissed. In fact, he's ready to storm off in a rage. But at the last minute, one of his servants talks him out of it, suggesting that, hey, you're already here. You came all this way. Let's just give this a try. And so he does what he's told, relents, and is immediately healed. And at that moment, he realizes that the God of Israel is the real deal. He goes back to Elisha with a completely different attitude. At this point, he declares that the God of Israel is the one true God and decides that he will from this point onward only worship him instead of Rimen, the God of his homeland. So this is a pretty dramatic story. It involves not just the transformation from sickness into health, but also that of a pagan proud general into a humble follower of God. Um, I think we can learn three, at least three lessons about this story uh, regarding grace. The first is that god's grace is ever present generous and deeply personal and the second is that while grace is free receiving it does require humility and the last is that when we receive this grace it prompts us to respond in worship so let's talk about the first which is that god's grace is ever present generous and deeply personal now I'm not trying to give you a generic platitude about some nice grace thing that you can put on a quilt. We're talking about a powerful, life-changing force here. In fact, grace is at work in our lives whether we realize it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not. We see several ways that God's grace uh, is is present in Naaman's life. And of course, his healing, his miraculous healing is obviously one of them. But even before our story has begun, we're told that God's grace has already exerted a huge influence on Naaman's life. Um, Verse one in this chapter says, he was a great man in the sight of his master highly regarded because through him the lord had given victory to aaron naaman's claim to fame is his military success and he even gets partial mention for his bravery and valor really essential qualities in a, in a good leader but the author of second kings clearly states that he was able to get victory over israel because god granted it now by all accounts none of this grace that we see given to uh, to naaman really is earned or deserved that God would even favor Naaman seems surprising to us, especially in the context of the Old Testament, where we think of military victories as reserved for the Israelites working on God's purposes. Um, But that's exactly how God's race works. It is by definition not merited and not deserved. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Luke 6 also describes God as merciful and that he is kind to the great ungrateful and the wicked. We all enjoy the good that God has created in this world as human beings, universal human experiences like love, joy, beauty, and pleasure. Um, whether we acknowledge this or not, we are recipients of what we would call God's common grace in this way. And even though God's grace extends far and wide to everybody, it's really anything but pers- impersonal. In fact, it is a deeply intentional and specific thing to each of us as individuals naaman's healing is an act of grace but so are the chain of events that lead to his ultimate uh, change of attitude and a closer look shows that they're written with god's fingerprints for example naaman would have never known about elisha if it weren't for the israelite girl that god allowed to be captured by his troops, part of the string of victories that he allowed him to have naaman also needed a letter of referral and advocacy from the king of aram given how politically tense the situation was between these countries the king probably wouldn't be very motivated to make this weird sort of introduction if it weren't for all of the credit and all of the favor he had carried through these previous victories right and so when he finally got to elisha Naaman would have actually completely blown his chance it were not for the fact that he got talked back into it by good counsel from his servants this wasn't really his decision he got talked into it his first reaction to these instructions about bathing in the river jordan were that. It's sort of like a cruel joke. It doesn't really make any sense. Only after he got tacked back into it did he consider to go with a plan. And so, of course, we all know Naaman has agency in all of these situations. He was making decisions, but in God's sovereignty, he had placed key enablers in his life that would open a path for him to receive God's grace. Proverbs 16, eight says, "'In their hearts, humans plan their course, "'but the Lord establishes their steps.'" This is exactly what God did for Naaman. And this intense care and attention is the same thing that he ascribes to each of us, you and I. God intensely loves and cares for us even when we're not aware of it. The psalmist describes his attention to detail to us in chapter 139. It says, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. God's grace is ever present and generous and deeply, deeply personal. It's because he is an infinite being with infinite capacity. So his love and care for each of us is proportional to that infinite capacity. And that's really, really good news for us. The second thing we can learn about God's grace here is that even though grace is free and undeserved and super, super generous, receiving it does require humility. And the first step toward humility is actually recognizing that we need grace period in the first place. This is a lot harder than it sounds right Um, most of us tend towards self-reliance it's what our pride would prefer it's what our culture teaches us but god isn't shy about getting our attention and he often uses hardships and challenges in our lives to point us back to him Naaman knew he needed help it wasn't hard for him to know that he needed that as a leper he was super desperate for it in those days leprosy was a really dreaded disease it was highly transmissible without a cure And it was so feared that lepers were cast out of regular society and forced to live in leper colonies in total isolation from the rest of the world. It was also common superstition at the time that if you were sick, it was probably because something that you did that God was punishing you for. And so lepers were thought to have done something bad, or maybe their families had done something bad. And so all things considered, Naaman actually had it pretty good. He is noble and was allowed to participate in civic life, obviously. And he kept his position as a general, despite his sickness. Still, though, leprosy must have been a pretty constant source of embarrassment for him, maybe of shame even. It was definitely a blemish on what would otherwise be considered a pretty privileged life. Imagine just how much Naaman would have just wanted to be healed, how huge that would be for him. I mean, what price would you pay for being able to be released from an incurable chronic condition that burdened every aspect of every day of your life? Naaman's desperation reminds me of a time in my own life about seven years ago at the time, Eileen and I were married for about five years, and I by that point had been trying on and off to have children for over three. Our plan had was was really to just take it easy because life was busy enough as it was. She was in the middle of residency. I was constantly traveling for work, so it didn't make sense to put too much pressure on ourselves. But we were really wondering, you know, it's been three years now. Why is nothing really happening? Now, I have a complicated medical history, which was nagging at the back of our minds as maybe that was a factor. And so we decided to run some tests just to be safe. And as it turns out, the results of those tests came back and confirmed our worst fears. So rewinding just a little bit more, when I was in high school, I had Hodgkin's disease. It's a type of cancer uh, or lymphoma that occurs in the immune system. And the chemotherapy and radiation that I received for that were risk factors that could affect fertility later in life. And it turns out that that was definitely the case for me. I still remember sitting on the couch in our living room in San Francisco, um, just holding Eileen and crying as I read through the detailed notes that I had taken from the doctor's office visit earlier that day. Having children was something that we really longed for. It was part of the future that we had envisioned together, even when we were dating. And i had no idea how hard that news would hit me or would hit us until that day and we were totally devastated like many of you we are achievement driven people right most of our life milestones were arrived at by setting goals putting in the work and sort of reaping the results but in this particular situation we felt completely helpless just like Naaman. now i can't claim to have a neat pat answer as to why god allows suffering and pain in our lives But one of the purposes that we do know of that God uses it for is to remind us of our need for him. C.S. Lewis writes that the purpose of pain and suffering is to act like a megaphone that God uses to rouse a deaf world, as he puts it. Pain can't be ignored because it insists on being tended to. It sensitizes us to our physical needs and most importantly, our spiritual ones. John Piper is a really popular American preacher, and he has this analogy in one of his sermons on a similar topic, not exactly the same, but I find it to be a super, super helpful visual for how God uses suffering to reveal hidden sin in our lives. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. It sort of goes like this. Imagine your life is a pond or a lagoon. The water is still and clear, uh, totally pristine looking. But if something stirs the water and creates turbulence in it, the silt and sediment that's normally resting at the bottom of that water can get kicked up and muddies the water. The dirt and impurities were always there, right? But you couldn't notice it until there was turbulence in the water and gets agitated. In the same way, when life is smooth sailing, we feel like we're doing just fine. We can can often mistake that circumstantial evidence that we're doing fine as proof that we're in control, that we're self-sufficient, and we can even start to believe that we're good, like good with a capital G, good. And that we're entitled to what we have because we've earned it but remember that first point we discussed right god's grace is generous and undeserved it's deeply personal he loves us and cares for us it's not by chance that we have these blessings in our lives but that grace in our lives is not a reliable indicator of our moral standing in fact where we stand morally becomes super super clear when we stand face to face with god last week pastor david spoke to us about this holiness how he is beyond being beyond us And that when we stand face to face with it, our unholiness becomes painfully obvious and laid bare, even for professional holy people like Isaiah or Elisha. Now, the problem is that most of us aren't usually meditating on God's holiness on a daily basis when we're logging on at work, checking our bank accounts or hanging out with friends. Uh, You know, really, most of the time we're, in fact, obsessively comparing ourselves with the people around us, consciously or not. And when you're grading heavily on a curve, right, looking at other people as opposed to God, even 40 out of 100 can get you a B-plus on a test. So the purpose of suffering, right, as we see with Naaman, and I learned in my fertility journey, is that God uses it to grab our attention. He's stirring the waters of our hearts, showing us how much dirt is actually inside of us that we just thought wasn't there in the first place. And when that happens, we realize we're actually not that great. We're not so in control. And if we can humble ourselves to recognize it, we realize that our desperate need for grace is there. Wherever you are in your life, the invitation here is the same, which is to ask God to search your heart and to show you where you're in need of grace. It's really interesting. I don't think it's a coincidence that both David and I put this verse in our, our sermons without really coordinating with each other. I think God is really asking us to take a second look, and it's worth repeating. Psalm 139 says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Maybe the thing God wants to reveal to your attention is an arena of family or relationships. It might be that touchy subject that is a lightning rod for conflict with your partner or your spouse, um, something you've been stubbornly digging your heels on. If you're like me, you've been married for a while, you already have a list of five of those things that pops into your mind as soon as I say that, right? Um, or maybe it has to do with work. Let's face it, right? Workaholism and idolizing success is basically the official religion of Silicon Valley. I myself have struggled with worshiping at this particular altar on and off my entire life. I recently quit my VP title job uh, at a fast growing public company to spend some time focusing on family and reassessing what my next steps were. My boss and my coworkers all gave me huge congratulations for making such a brave and mature decision. But the truth is, I probably should have quit that job long ago. Um, It was just so unsustainable and really not great for family. But I hung on to it really too long because it was just so good for my career. So as we pray the words of that psalm for God to search our hearts, these are just some examples of where areas where God might be nudging you to really acknowledge shortcomings and seek his grace in humility. So if the first way that receiving God's grace requires humility is to simply acknowledge that you need it in the first place, the second way that God's grace requires humility is that we have to take it as it's given. The instructions that Elisha gave Naaman were pretty simple, bathe in the river Jordan seven times and be healed. But Naaman wasn't buying it at all. He thought the whole thing was a cruel joke. Now, the Bible scholars note that the river Jordan in Israel was known to be murky and turbid, not the prettiest place. It had a lot of significance, but it wasn't known for scenic beauty. And by contrast, the, uh, the other two rivers that Naaman mentioned, Abana and Farpar, they run through his home capital of Damascus and they're actually clear and beautiful. But a supernatural healing act is exactly that it defies natural laws it defies logic but naaman was judging the terms of elijah's offer for healing by his common sense his preconceptions about how god should be working and this is far from that it didn't have the pomp and circumstance of a grand gesture it was inefficient uh, it didn't seem very straightforward it's kind of awkward and inconvenient it didn't fit any of his expectations of what a healing whatever that should look like should be and he felt that God shouldn't just heal him. That wasn't his only expectation. He, was, he felt that he was entitled to a specific healing in a specific manner that befit his expectations and his status or whatever things that he was bringing to the table. But the truth is that he was in no place to make demands. He was desperate for healing, but his pride and misplaced sense of entitlement were a stumbling block for him. Similarly, I found myself frustrated and angry and mystified, frankly, as to why God was dragging us through this long process and withholding children from us. The agony of waiting, longing, hoping, but never really knowing was very painful for us to go through. In the three years that followed that initial discovery, we ended up going through a total of seven procedures before, spoiler alert, by the grace of God, he did allow us to have two children. Many of you here know Evan and Jojo, are five and two year olds, and have taken care of them in the nursery or in Sunday school. But while we were going through it all, the whole time, I mean, we were asking, why is this happening? Why us? Why does it have to be so hard? And perhaps most tellingly, haven't we been faithful and obedient to you? Why can't you grant us this one simple request if you so obviously have the power to do so? Now, I wanna make it really clear that in the big picture, we are so lucky. We have so many friends that have waited longer, suffered more, uh, experienced greater losses, or never, ever had their wish for children granted. And I don't want to imply any little bit that our experience is some sort of template or that God is going to address the challenge that you're facing in your life in the way that you're hoping for. And that's exactly the point here. And in so many ways, it's sort of the toughest part to wrestle with this truth, which is that grace is not deserved. We don't deserve it. And we aren't entitled to dictate how God gives it to us. How God works may appear to us as inefficient, meandering, not what we are so simply and plainly asking for. But God isn't a distant force who's toying with us. Remember that psalm we read earlier, where he talks about his intense love for us. He knows all of our days before we've lived them and is thinking about us all the time. He gives us his grace freely and generously, and frankly is a much better judge of what we need than we are. As both Naaman and I discovered, God wasn't primarily interested in healing him or giving me kids. His top priority was helping us come to know him and depend on him through that entire experience of suffering. Now, the scripture doesn't really give us many details, but I imagine that Naaman's trip to the River Jordan must have been strange. He would have to take his clothes off, exposing his diseased skin for all his generals and servants to see, and wade into the muddy water. After a while, he'd have to come out go back in and repeat the process all over again. Not once, not twice, not three times, but seven times altogether. The whole thing must have been really strange and awkward to watch. With each trip back into the river, I imagine Naaman feeling less and less like the proud decorated war general of Aram, and more and more like a helpless sick leper who had run out of options and had really had nothing to lose by that point. With each successive procedure that Eileen and I went through in our journey, God was also plying our hearts, relieving us of our illusion of control. Um, And it was becoming very clear to us that nothing in that process was guaranteed, no matter what the statistics or the clinical studies suggested. If we were to be able to have kids, it would have to be by the divine orchestration of God. We didn't deserve it. God needed Eileen and I to arrive at that place of total helplessness, so that we could have room in our hearts to seek him out and rely on him along the way. And God goes through that trouble to do all of that because he loves us and our having a relationship with him is far more valuable in the grand scheme of eternity than any one thing we might be hoping or longing for so desperately in this life. Naaman would have never gotten to know God if he didn't have leprosy and he wouldn't have experienced a change of heart if Elisha had just come out and waved his hand like he wanted to. Maybe his skin would be healed, but his heart would be exactly the same as it was before. And similarly, Eileen and I are so, so grateful for our children. But in hindsight, we're also grateful for those dark days of uncertainty and waiting. God sat with us in our grief and our anger and never stopped loving us. Those days now remind us that literally everything is by his grace, and none of it can be taken for granted. The good news is that if we desire that grace, if we have the humility to realize that we really need it, it's readily available to us, and we don't need to go very far for it. Naaman had to ask for a referral. He had traveled to another country, bringing servants and gifts in tow. We don't really need to cross any borders or get referrals or bring gifts. We don't have to go anywhere at all. And the price of admission doesn't require us to have qualifications, character requirements, or good deeds. We have free access to God who is here for us. On the, uh, He's here for us, the worst version of us, on our worst day. Matthew 11 says come to me all you who are weary and burdened and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls god isn't just sitting somewhere on high behind a velvet rope he's actively pursuing us with the intention and love that we read about in psalm 139. recall those things that god put in place that opened a path for naaman to receive his grace the servant girl the king's favor servants who weren't afraid to speak truth to their master the hallmark of God's grace is that he clears that path for us to receive it and when our tendency is to be just like Naaman prideful and above help um, he got he sent his son Jesus to earth to pursue us dying on the cross for our sins Philippians 2 says Jesus who in being in very nature God did not consider equality of God something to be taken advantage of rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus took that first step by humbling himself. He was God, but brought himself down to our level so that he could relate to us, suffer with us, and ultimately die an unjust death on the cross in our place. Three weeks ago, we were learning about God the provider, and we read about God's covenant with Abraham where he promised to uphold both ends of their agreement, guaranteeing that even if Abraham fell through on his side, God would make it right for the both of them. By coming to earth and suffering the consequences of our shortcomings in our place, Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Grace is totally free, but humbling ourselves to the point that we can truly receive it as grace can be the hardest part of this whole thing. The beauty of the gospel, though, is that Jesus set that example of humility for us. Again, our default setting is to be proud like Naaman, afraid to look bad, wanting to be in control, and resistant to doing anything wrong, or admitting that we've done wrong. But God's grace invites us to humble ourselves and submit to it by receiving a free gift. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and the not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Receiving God's grace requires humility, but when we do that, we gain the freedom from being able to rely, uh, from not having to rely on ourselves and our striving. We gain the gift of knowing God, and by leaning on His grace and drawing from His strength, um, we don't have to use our endless striving to accomplish what we need to in our lives. So, finally, Naaman's example shows us that the proper response to receiving grace is worship when we humble ourselves to receive his grace, he gets the full credit. And that's really what worship is all about. As soon as Naaman realizes that he is healed, he immediately goes back to Elisha. He understands the weight of what's just happened and declares, now I know that there is no God in all of the world except Israel. He understands that God uh, that Elisha serves doesn't just deserve credit for healing, but that God is greater, truer, and more worthy of worship than any other one. And this understanding prompts him to worship. He asks Elijah for soil from Israel so he can take it back to uh, Aram and worship God from there on Israel's soil, which is sort of the, con- uh, the, uh, the custom of the time. And he went from being a proud and arrogant general to, uh, who looked down on Elisha and his God to having total humility and deference instead. When we give up our pride to receive grace, our worship response gives him glory or said in a different way in 1 Corinthians, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Worshipping God also means that we should clear space in our hearts for him that otherwise might be occupied by other things. And in the Bible, those other things are called idols. Jesus famously said in his sermon uh, on the Mount in Matthew 6 that no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. The question for us is this. Who, or rather what, do we worship today instead of God? David Foster Wallace was a celebrated writer and novelist. And he wrote the following, which I find really compelling because he was not a religious person. He was not a Christian. He was simply an agnostic. And he says this, in the day to day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you where you have real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. Functionally speaking, we all worship something in our lives. And to properly worship God, we must know what that is so that we can shift our attention away from that and towards God. Worshiping him means unclenching our fists of those pursuits and opening them to receive God's grace. By letting go of those things, we can make room for his grace to satisfy us from whatever we think it is that will that isn't him. Paul encourages us in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God as our true and proper worship. God has done all the work here by freely giving us his grace. All that's left for us to do is to respond in gratitude and worship. And we do this not because we are driven by some misplaced sense of religious obligation, but in response to the freedom and joy that we have by receiving and living in his grace. So in closing, God is actively pursuing us eager to know him, uh, for us to eagerly know him and receive his generous and free gift of grace. Is there a source of suffering or hardship that you wish to bring to him? As we pray for God to search our hearts, like we said in Psalm 139, is there an area of your life where you sense a need for God's grace but have been trying to hack it yourself? God is inviting you to let go and to humbly lay that burden at his feet so that you can receive his grace instead. For those of you who might not identify as followers of Jesus, I invite you to really consider that. For those of us who identify as followers of Christ, Are we allowing the pressures and demands of life distract us from his grace are those things causing us to regress back into a mindset a mode of self-striving that we're so used to forgetting that god's grace has done that work for us are we allowing old idols to regain control and attention of our lives and if that's the case let's lift our eyes again humble ourselves and hold tighter for god's grace responding in worship of him let's pray Um, heavenly father just thank you so much for the story of naaman thank you that while you're holy and just and powerful um, you're also gracious and loving and pursuing us all constantly even when we aren't aware of it thank you for pursuing us even when we are resistant against it and broke pride uh, prideful and above help like naaman was um, we ask that you search our hearts and show us areas in our lives that we are in need of your grace and help us to have that openness and humility to receive it and in doing so be able to Let go of our own efforts and find peace and rest in your grace. Um, I also wanna say a particular prayer for those of us today who might be struggling with health-related issues like Naaman was, or the physical or mental health, um, and including those who are still wanting and hoping to have children, but may have been waiting a long time. We ask for healing and restoration, and then this season of waiting, more importantly, that through that suffering, you would draw near to them so that even in that suffering and uncertainty, your love and care would be tangible and real. Father, we are grateful for the abundance and generosity of your grace. Help us to receive it, to treasure it, and to be able to draw satisfaction from it above all things. In your name we pray.